I want to invite you to get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. We are in a series called The King and His Kingdom. Let me explain to you what I think this message is going to feel like. It's what I experience when I go to Wawa and I want to get a protein bar. And what I do when I pick a protein bar is I always pick it up and see which one's the heaviest. I don't know what it is, but the heaviest protein bar is the one that I buy. Because I like density, I like protein, I like meat, I like things that have a lot of substance to it. So there's not really anything in this message that is going to be deep, but I do think there's a lot in this message that's going to be dense. I think this is going to have a lot of substance. So I want to encourage you to get your Bibles open with me. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, and if you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one right in front of you in that pew. Let me catch you up to what we've seen so far in the Beatitudes. Jesus is preaching. This sermon spans chapters 5 through 7. He's preaching mainly to his disciples. Look, verses 1 and 2. But there's a lot of other people, a crowd that is listening in. Likely hundreds, I'm going to probably guess thousands. And in the first part of the sermon, verses 3 through 12, they're called the Beatitudes. And Jesus is showing his disciples mainly. Now, you ready? You got to hear this. He's showing his disciples what his heart looks like. I mean, don't you want to know what the heart of God looks like? This is it. This is exactly what his heart looks like. And he's going to show them what he's transforming their hearts to look like. And Christian, this is what he's transforming your heart to look like. These beatitudes are personal. This is what God's doing in you. He's making you like him. That was always Jewish discipleship. The rabbi poured himself into his Talmudi, his disciples, so that they would look like him. And then in the rest of the sermon, verses 13, all the way to the end of chapter 7, Jesus is going to show us what the redeemed heart, that heart that he is transforming us to have, what it looks like when it lives life. We're going to see in this sermon how to live like the redeemed. And the only way you can live like the redeemed is if you have the heart of the redeemed, because out of the heart comes the way we live. So the first three Beatitudes, they are painful. If you've not yet experienced the pain of these sermons and the Beatitudes, I don't think probably I've been doing my job or maybe you're not listening well because these beatitudes empty you before they fill you. They bring you to nothing before they give you everything. The very first one empties us of our own goodness, spiritual poverty. We are spiritually poor. We don't have any self-righteousness and this beatitude is about the disciple who comes to that realization or the person that comes to that realization and then comes into the kingdom. And we mourn over our sinfulness. That's the second one. We realize we cannot manage our own lives. That's meekness. That's the third one. And, and now those three, those first three that have been stripping us of ourself, emptying us of all of our self-confidence, our self-reliance, our self-righteousness, now turns us to Jesus. And the fourth one. He fills us with righteousness when we hunger for it, when we desire it. He creates in us merciful hearts. That's the fifth one, and we looked at that last week. We're going to look at the pure hearts that he, that he creates this week. We're going to look at the peaceable heart that he creates next week. Now, I mentioned before that Jesus gave these beatitudes in a perfect and very deliberate intentional order. Spiritually poor, now, actually, this is really, really critical you get this, because you can in your mind you can start drawing lines between the beatitude. The spiritually poor are the ones who can receive mercy. They're the ones that are going to be able to give it. When they realize that they are nothing before God, it will create in them a desire to come towards those whose sins have made them miserable and show them the love of God. Spiritual poverty creates merciful hearts. Those who, become, who have become uh, meek, 
Well, you're going to see today it will create the disciple whose passions are kept in control. We're going to see, that's rather next week, we're going to see the meek are those who keep their passions in control and pursue peace. Today, however, we're going to see those who mourn over their sin will hate it and it will drive them towards purity in their hearts. So let's look at it, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me give you a few points. And I'm going to really, that nothing is going to be deep. Nothing that I'm going to tell you is going to be complicated. It's going to be dense. So you've got to get ready to write these things down, ready to store them into your, your heart. Here's the difference between listening to a sermon because you like and it tickles your ears. You like the sermon, it's tickling your ears. And listening for transformation. You ready? Here's how you do it. When the preacher is preaching, your constant question. Your mind is in gear. You don't put yourself in neutral. You're not only asking, is what he is saying right? And is it biblical? You're asking God, God, is this for me? So let me get us all on the same starting line. Ready? We're about to go around the racetrack. Let's all get on the starting line. How many of us, just answer this privately, how many of us struggle with purity? Are your eyes being in control of Christ? Are you looking at what you ought to look at and looking away from what you ought not to look at? Is your mouth speaking pure words so that when somebody gives a joke at work that is bad, you not only Try not to laugh at it, you actually say something about it. Is your mind thinking pure thoughts? When you're angry, are you full of profanity in your mind and thinking, well, it's okay because it's not coming out of my mouth? God looks a little deeper than that. So is there purity in your life? So here's the question at the starting gate. Do we struggle with purity? And let me kind of answer that for all of us. I'm pretty sure the answer is yes. Me included. So here we go. The aim of the beatitude is the heart, number one. The aim of the beatitude is the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, I've been talking about the heart a lot in the series. I'm going to be talking about it throughout the entire series. So I'm just going to briefly touch on it today. The heart, the word heart is from the Greek word cardia, K-A-R-D-I-A. That ought to be immediately recognizable, cardiac. 830 times in the Bible we see this word. We say things, now listen, you're going you're gonna to get this, I think, pretty quickly. We say things like, this is the heart of the matter, meaning that we're getting to the very center and the most important part of something. Well, this is what the Bible means then with the word heart. It means it's the center of who you are. It's the center of who I am. It's the control center. It determines everything that you're going to do. It determines how you think. It determines what you're feeling. It's the control center of all three of those. Your intellect, your feelings, and your will. You've got to understand that when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about your mind it's talking about your affections, your emotions, and it's talking about your motivation, your will. Those three things, mind, feelings, your will. And by the way, it doesn't mean that the, that the heart can compartmentalize any of those. It's that in this part of the heart, you're a thinking person, and in this part of the heart, you're a feeling person. And then unrelated to those two, you're a doing person. And some of you are predominantly doers, while some of you are predominantly feelers. And some are really rational and thinkers. Listen, you might be predominant in one of those three, but you are interrelated in the heart. They always work together. They never work apart. Everything you say is coming from your heart. Everything I do is coming from the heart. 
If I want to change my words, if I want to change the way I think, if I want to change the way I live, then listen, the gospel has to get to the heart and transform it. You can't change until that happens. Now, Jesus is bringing this out very clearly in Matthew chapter 15. He says this, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Did you see that? This is so beautifully simple. What comes out of your mouth, it's coming from your heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. He's just giving a sampling. What he's really saying is that everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel is coming out of your heart. So here's the good news. This is awesome. But I got to tell you the bad news before I tell you the good. The bad news is that when I was born, November 6, 1966, I told you I was old. When I was born, just a baby, yes, I had red hair. If some of you are thinking of that right now, I know you are. I was a little baby with a sinner's heart. My mom and dad did not ever once download a manual for me written in childish language how I can learn to sin. It was on board. I was pre-wired, pre-programmed to be a sinner. And all of us are, and all of us have been since the fall of Adam. So all of us are born with a heart that not only chooses to defy God, but it's a heart that desires to be God or like God. In other words, now some of you are thinking, maybe, well, I've never wanted to be like God. I've never been, wanted to be God. Well, listen, have you ever wanted to control your surroundings? Have you wanted to ever manage things? Have you ever been anxious because you have no control of what's going to happen in your future? And so you do things that you regret later? That's what it means to be like God. That's what it's like with a heart that is in need of transformation. But the very moment, here's the good news, the very moment you turn to Jesus Christ and you cried out to him, God, I'm a sinner and I cannot change my, my sin. I cannot take it away. I cannot save myself. But I do believe, Jesus, that you can save me. And I think that's what you did on the cross. And so I'm asking you to forgive me. The very moment you pray that, by faith, God does a transplant operation. He takes your spiritual heart and he removes it from your soul. And he puts a brand new heart of his making that now pumps out desires that he has and thoughts that he thinks and joy that he feels. And the rest of your life and the rest of my life is learning how to live with this, this transplanted heart, this new heart. How do you put more of God in it? How do you walk with God so that more of himself is in there? Because he's indwelling, he's dwelling in your heart. He wants to have full control to transform you to be like Jesus. He's aiming at your heart, but the goal, now listen, the aim of the beatitude is your heart. But the goal is purity. Now look what it says. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's point number two, the goal of the beatitude, purity. Now that word pure, here's where the density starts coming in. That word pure has two related but distinct meanings in the Bible. They both could be seen in this incredible verse that I opened up our, our worship with, Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I'm going to show you both meanings. They're both there, but I'm going to explain them to you. Here's the first way that the word pure is used in the Bible. It means morally clean. It means morally clean. The Bible calls it clean hands and a clean heart or a pure heart. Pure, the word, means to be cleansed of contamination. It means to be, oh, this is amazing. It means to be made holy. 
Or, and this is even more amazing because it just seems so impossible, it means to be made perfect. So those are synonyms. So when you, when you hear or think of the word pure in verse 8, you think you could just simply put in the word holiness or the word perfection. And Jesus is going to talk about this later in the sermon. God's goal for your heart, Christian, is that it would be 100% pure, which means 100% clean from sin. That's his goal. Now, you're probably reeling right now. You're probably backing up going, wait a minute, this is not possible. See, this is what happened to the Pharisees. The scribes, scribes were Jewish lawyers. Most, almost all of them were part of the Pharisees. There were four groups of Jewish leaders, Pharisees, Essenes, Zealots, and the um, Sadducees. So these Pharisees, which contained the scribes, were backing up as well. They were reeling as well because, listen, who can possibly get your heart 100% clean from sin? So what they did was they took the law of God and they said, well, listen, if you're going to be righteous by keeping the law, by the way, that's legalism, that's not grace, but this is what Jewish Judaism had gotten to. If you want to be righteous, you got to maintain the law, you got to obey it, and there's no way we can obey all of this, so I've got to shrink it, shrink it, shrink it, I got to narrow it to where it's just a few things, and if I'm really wise, I can narrow it to one thing. And if I just keep that one thing, then I am righteous, and I am holy, and I am free from sin. They could not even keep that one thing. None of us could. But God's goal for your heart, Christian, is 100% purity, the same goal as he has for mine. Now, let me talk about the Pharisees a little bit more. They had almost completely externalized purity by the first century when Jesus was on earth. And what began as purity instructions from the Old Testament for the priests before they were to administer the sacrifices in the tabernacle and in the temple, all of a sudden, during the Babylonian exile, they mandated these same purity principles or purity steps to all of the Jews. In fact, they measured their righteousness. Now, are you getting my words? They measured how righteous they were by how meticulously they kept these purity laws. Now, you might be wondering, what are the purity laws? I'm just going to give you a little bit of, one, of a few of them, actually. Before every meal and between each of the courses of the meal... They washed their hands with water that was kept in large stone purification jars that could only be used for one purpose. It was water set apart, made holy, to make you morally clean in front of the Lord or with the Lord. They viewed these external washings as able to make you clean and holy before God. I know that's crazy, isn't it? That's what legalism does. So hands had to be clean before the meal and in between each course of the meal. And here's the way that they did it. They would have a servant bring over one and a half, one and a half eggshells of water. That was one of their measuring devices. While the people, the Jewish people, would hold their hands up and the servant would pour the water from those purity jars down the fingers, down the hands to roll off, wash off the wrists. And then they would take their fists and they would clean this palm and then take this fist and clean this palm. But now that water was tainted, so the servant would go and get one more egg and a half of water. And now their hands pointed down, he would pour it from the wrists and now the clean water off the fingertips. They did that before a meal. They did that in between each course of the meal. And what they believed is if you did not do that, you defiled yourself with God. You were not worthy or fit to worship or serve him. They also believed that if you did not eat with clean hands, that the demon Shipta would come into the mouth through your unclean hands and possess you and turn you away from God. This was the fear that they held over the people. The Mishnah 
which is the oral teaching that was written down in about 200 AD, had 35 pages instructing how you ceremonial, ceremonially clean all of the implements in your home that went towards preparing the food. Now, why am I telling you this? What I'm helping you to understand is that by the time of Jesus, purity, blessed are the pure in heart, it wasn't looked at in the heart. It was looked at externally. If you want to be holy before God, you want to be pure, then you've got to have all of these external washings. If you were a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, and you wanted to become a, you wanted to enter into Judaism, they would take you, the Jewish people would, after you confessed, they would put you into one of these large stone purity jars and they would dunk you completely below the waterline of that purified water, that purity water, and they would bring you out. They would baptize you and you now have entered into Judaism. This is where it had gotten to by the time of Jesus. They believed that food touched by any Gentile was rendered unclean. So when they would come back from a public market where they were buying their food, they would often immerse their whole bodies in clean water to take away spiritual defilement. This is their thoughts. Purity is something external to them, where Jesus is now saying in the Beatitude, no, it's a matter of your heart. To be clean before God was to have the heart made pure from sin. Now, Proverbs 20, verse 9, has a really incredible verse. It says, who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Who can possibly say that? Now, you ready? Look at me for a second. Christian, sneak peek. You can say that if you've been washed in the blood of Christ. But back to what Jesus was saying, he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, that means the heart and the plate, that the outside may be clean. See, they were going from the outside in. You do all of these ceremonial washings, and you will be clean and holy before God. Jesus says that's not even possible. You've completely inverted it. You've lost the gospel. It's always been about your heart being made clean by faith through Christ, and the rest of your body begins to get clean as well. What you speak, what you think, and what you feel, it starts in your heart. Now, let me give you just a super quick snapshot of how this works. You've got a sin in your life that you cannot defeat. Almost everybody in here is going to say yes privately because that's usually our greatest point of shame. But you probably have a sin that you cannot get victory over. You do well maybe for a day, a month, a year. Probably not a year, but you do well for a while. And then all of a sudden, that dragon comes back. You make one slip back into that sin, and all of its raging power comes with it. If you want victory over sin, yes, let's take the very popular one for men. Take the computer out of the private room. Face it towards everybody in the house. Get a software program that's going to link you into accountability. Do all of those external things, but the external washings won't make your heart pure. They're good to do, but until your heart is transformed, you will continue to find ways to get to that sin. This is the beatitude that speaks to that. Point number two, or rather the second way that purity is used in the Bible, is single-mindedness. This is Psalm 24. Single-mindedness. It was the word, this is interesting, the word used by the Greek people for refining metal until it was unalloyed or free from impurities. Pure metal. This was the, when it got to that unalloyed metal, it was called pure. This word was used for an army. Military word. They had been purged of all the cowardly, all of the inefficient, all of the weak and bad soldiers. They had got down to the lean, mean fighting machine. This was now the word they used for that, pure. 
The word was used for grain when it was winnowed. Remember when you throw it up in the Old Testament, the wind blows the chaff, Psalm chapter 1. The chaff blows away. The heavier kernel settles back down. You do it over and over and over until finally you have nothing left but pure grain, which you crush and you make it into flour. This is the word describing pure grain. It was used for water that was now considered clear and free from filth. It was used for royalty when they made sure that their bloodline was untainted by any common person in the kingdom. Finally, it was a, it was a word that was used or that meant that you were truly devoted. You had no divided loyalties. You had no mixed motives. You were single Minded. You take all of those uses for the word pure. Remember grain, army, bloodline. You spiritualize it, and you've got a single-minded heart. That's what the Bible means when it calls your heart pure. Yes, free from moral contamination. Thank you, Jesus. Your blood has washed us clean, but now there's a process of sanctification. We are double-minded people. We have allegiances to the world. We have an allegiance to God that's double-mindedness. God brings us into single-minded living. That's purity. Blessed are those, the psalmist says, who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Have you ever, has that ever dawned on you, that, that phrase, that whole heart? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That single-minded, loving the Lord your God with part of your heart is double-minded. Double-minded people want to follow Jesus, but they continually are pulled to the world as well. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Or the love of the Father is not in you. That's double-minded living. And the gospel brings double-minded people into single-minded Christians. That's purity of heart. We're double-minded when we love money. Jesus says it. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Listen, if your heart is running after Money, you think money in your savings bank and in your retirement fund brings you security. That's double-minded living. Our security should come from Christ and Christ alone, his, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his goodness to us. If, it's being, if you're getting peace from money, you're double-minded. Double-minded Christians swing from delighting in God to delighting in this world. We do really well on Saturdays. We do really well on Sundays. But by Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, we're right back in the world. That's double-minded. Double-minded Christians identify publicly with Christ, but privately live like an unbeliever. I'm sure you know people like that. Double-minded Christians worship God at church. They set him aside on Mondays. This people, Matthew 15, 8, Jesus is speaking. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far from me. That's double-minded worship. That's why in, in the beginning today, I'm, I'm imploring you, get your lips in sync with your heart. Otherwise, it's double-minded worship. God doesn't like that. Pure hearts are single-minded hearts. There is no division between our knowledge of God and righteous living, the way that we live it. There's no division between what we believe and how we behave. There's no division between our faith and our deeds. There's no divided allegiance between Christ and another master in our lives, which, by the way, is called an idol. Jesus says in Luke 10, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's single-minded. That is what Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. They are the ones whose hearts are made new. They're made clean before God. They're living in single-minded devotion to him. They're no longer vacillating between God and the world. And the blessing that Jesus promises to those who are pure in hearts, the greatest blessing that a Jewish mind could ever imagine. Look what he says. Blessed are the pure in heart. Here it is. 
for they shall see God. Which brings us to point number three, the promise of the beatitude. See God. What's that mean? Do you know this is beautiful? This breaks down into two ways that we see God. There's a future way and there's a present way. Let me give you the future one. That's the most obvious. Look at your beatitude again, if you would. Look at verse 8. Look at they shall. That's a future tense, right? That's a word we use in our English to say something is coming in the future. So there is a future meaning that goes like this. One day, God's people, if you are in Christ, do you know that one day you're going to see God face to face? This was the greatest desire of the Old Testament saints. It is something that I regularly see when I'm visiting dying Christians who have been walking closely with the Lord. Listen, if that's you, I'm going to give you, I think, a pretty safe guarantee and promise. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm in my 24th year as a pastor, so I think I can say this with a lot of confidence, that when you walk with the Lord now, And your time comes, which it surely is, as well as mine, when you will be walking through that valley of the shadow of death and you will be near to meeting your maker. You will not be in fear of that day. You will have the blessings of God to walk you through that day. And the single, the single ultimate desire of your heart, I've seen it over and over and over, the single ultimate desire. Yes, will there be trepidation? Probably. Will there be some anxiety that the gospel's got to extinguish? Probably. Will you worry about the the pain of that moment? Probably. But what's going to overarch all of that, the single presiding motive in your heart is going to be, I am going to see very near and very soon the face of my Savior. That's what's going to capture your heart. I've been with people who were dying, who died the next morning. I was with them the night before, and their arms could barely be held up. We had to help her hold her arms up as she is singing praises to the Lord, unable even to get a full breath. I've been with people who are dying who have a smile on their face and all of a sudden come back to some kind of animation when you begin to teach or rather speak and remind them that they're about to see God. And all of a sudden, joy comes back in their faces. You walk with God now. You are the pure in heart now. What will capture your heart when it's your turn to go through the valley of the shadow of death will be the promise and the hope you're going to see God. Moses on Mount Sinai asked to see the glory of God, and God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You and I cannot survive seeing God's face now. It would absolutely destroy us. We're finite creatures, and until we're made into immortal beings and glorified, we see the face of God. Then it will be rapture and joy. We see it now. It would undo us, and it would destroy us. The problem is God is utterly holy. He cannot, he will not be in the presence of sin. And Christian, while you and I are made holy, we are made right with God. Well, if you're like me this last week, you didn't do real well. There were times you got angry, and it wasn't righteous anger. And there were times that even deeper than you're even aware, there was a bent towards you more than there was a bent towards others. And when God shows you that, it drives you right back into beatitude number one, spiritual poverty, which brings you to mourn over your sin, which makes you cry out to God in meekness. You've got to do this work in me because I cannot do it. And it makes you hunger for righteousness, that you will be like God. And he fills you with mercy and he brings you a step closer to a pure heart that is undivided in its loyalty, that is working free of moral contamination called sin. Beloved, we are God's children now, John says, and 
What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. And let me change this just a moment. Then, or because we will be made like him, then we shall see him as he is. You can't see him as he is until he makes you new, completely new and glorifies you. But that's the future. There is a present way that we see God, and it is glorious. It is beautiful. But how? Let me give you a few ways. Let me give you two ways, actually. The way that we see God now, Christian, is through knowledge and understanding. So Greek tenses are really, really important. But they're not immediately clear in the English translation. So let me tell you that the Greek tense for the phrase, see God, I would write this in the margin of your Bible if I were you, it means to continuously see him, to continually see him. It's not a once and done. It means now. Yes, you shall see God in the future, finally face to face, but there is now a continuous way that we see God. And we begin seeing him the moment that God saved us. And he opened up the eyes of our hearts so that, the, so that we can know him, that we can see him at work. So seeing, now listen, this is important. Seeing here is way more than optical clarity. It's not physical vision. It is understanding. It is knowledge. We use it this way, by the way. We, we say things like we might, when we're trying to explain something to a friend, and then we ask our friend, do you, do you see what I mean? We're asking about, do you understand? Do you know it now? This is what I'm trying to explain to you. It's what we're saying with that. I've been explaining to this to you. Do, you. do you see it now? We try and convince someone to see it our way. Or we tell our kids, one day when you have children, you'll see why I'm doing this. See, we use that word in a non-optical way that means understanding and knowledge. And that's what it means here. See means to understand. It means to gain knowledge. And Christ's promise that the pure in heart shall see God means that those whose hearts he has made spiritually clean and single-minded, they shall know and they shall understand God in ways that they could not before. Now listen, I'm going to tell you something. The more your heart is brought into purity and away from double-minded living and into single-minded devotion to God, the more God purifies your heart, the more you will see and understand him. If you're harboring sin that is unconfessed, unrepentant sin that you like, and you're not willing to let it go, you're not going to see God. You're not going to increasingly understand him. That sin is barring you from holiness. That sin is keeping your heart from ongoing, increasing purity, and your knowledge of God has capped. Till your heart is made pure, then you shall see God continuously more and more. That progressively deepening knowledge will overcome fear like it did for Moses. You struggle with fear? Look what happened with Moses, Hebrews 11. By faith he left Egypt and not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured as understanding. He had knowledge of Yahweh, and it overcame his fear of Pharaoh, the strongest man, most powerful man in the world. So seeing shall see God means understanding and knowledge. It's another way, though. There's another use of that, the second one. It means intimate fellowship. And by the way, here's how we use this. You might tell somebody, I have to go see the dentist today. That doesn't mean you're going to catch sight of your dentist and go home. It means you have an appointment with your dentist to see God is to be with him. Here more and more as our hearts are made increasingly pure and for eternity as all remaining sin is wiped away from our hearts. Now listen, you get the Queen of Sheba in the Old Testament. 
who was so overwhelmed when she met Solomon. She said, happy are your men. Happy are your servants. Why are they happy? Look at this. Who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. She was saying, how incredibly joyful your servants must be because they get to be in your presence always. David says to to God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living word. When shall I come and appear before God? So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, what he's speaking in part of is that the more pure your heart is, because the gospel is moving you to moral cleansing, it's moving you to single-minded living, you're going to be with God, you're going to enjoy his presence more and more, you're going to have an ongoing appointment with him, you will understand Stand intimate fellowship. The blessing for those whose hearts are pure is presently, today, Christian, knowledge and understanding of God in intimate fellowship with Him. And future, it's one day perfect clarity of seeing Him face to face for eternity. That's the blessing. Blessed are the pure in heart whose very center has been made clean from sin through the cross of Christ and is increasingly being made into single-minded devotion to God so that you love him with all your whole heart, all your mind, your soul, your strength. Well, listen, blessed, here's the blessing. You're going to see him face to face one day, but right now you get to have more knowledge of him and you get to have more intimate fellowship with him. This is the blessing when God purifies your heart continuously more and more. So it probably would be a good idea if we end this message with some practical understanding of how do you become pure. I mean, if all that blessing, future and present, is for those whose hearts are made pure, then we probably want to know how do you become pure. And I'll give you a few, five of them. We are made clean We're given new hearts by the blood of Christ. It starts with that. Now, can you look at me for just a moment? I'll I'll say it again so you can write it down. But can you look at me for just a moment? I, I have to make sure you hear this. This is critical. If you're trying to go around the cross to get to a pure heart, all you're doing is calling your servants to come to you with an egg and a half of water and pouring it over your hands, thinking that that's going to make you holy. It is absolutely not going to work. You can't make yourself clean. You can't outperform your sin. You can't do enough good things that will tilt the balance for your favor in God's sight. None of that works. Or why would the father send the son to die? I'm a parent. I have four kids. If there was another way to save humanity, there's no way I'm sending my only begotten son to die for them. Let him find it the other way if there is one. There isn't. The only way your heart could be made pure, the only way you begin the journey of a single-minded heart, clean from moral contamination of sin, that will see God now in knowledge and understanding, experiencing him in fellowship that is intimate, which will one day see him face to face. The only way that journey begins is through the cross of Christ. He must make your heart new. And the moment you cry out to him in faith, he takes your old heart out and he gives your new heart to you. John gets to this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's no way to be pure other than through the blood of Christ. It has to begin there. So have you come to the cross where you've seen your spiritual poverty, where you've mourned over your sins, and in faith asked God to save you through the death and the resurrection of Christ. The moment you do, he puts a new right heart within you, and he helps you begin to see God. That's how it all begins, but then it goes to step two. It's not a step, but here's the second 
way that we can make our hearts pure. We're made continually clean by the word of God. We are continually made clean by the word of God. This is what Ephesians says. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. How? That word sanctified means basically to make you holy, make you pure. How did he do it? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's the word of God that cleaned your heart. The more that you love God's word, the more that you are in God's word, meditating on God's word, making it a regular part of your life, it works to break up the particles of contamination. It works to open your eyes. It works to change your desires so that you want nothing more than God. That's why this is living and active. This is not just a spotlight that shines on your heart and then shows you all the work you've got yet to do. It does that, but a lot more. And then it gives you the promise that God knows how much work you've got to do. He knows how much sin is still in there, and he's willing to help you with it. And then it gives you the desires so that you can get rid of this sin, so that you can know God more, that you can become more like Jesus. That's the power of the word. And here's my greatest, literally my greatest frustration as a pastor. So many of you don't use it. I'm like, you're not going to grow. Your heart can't be made more pure if you don't begin to get in the Word of God and love it. And it's not complicated. If this sets on the shelf of your heart unused, your heart will not progress towards purity. But there's a third one. We're made clean as we confess our sins to God. And I'm going to tell you what confess means, but... Here's two verses. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands means to confess. It literally means to confess. You hold out your hands, which are dirty. That's your heart. You hold out your hands. You say, God, I see it. By the way, that's what confess means. It means two things. It means to agree with God. God has to show you your sin. How's he going to show it to you? He's going to show it to you in his word. If you're not in the word, you're not seeing your sin. And if you're not seeing your sin, you can't do the second thing. And that is to cast it on the mercies of God. Confess means to agree and to cast. But if you don't see it, you can't agree it. Agree with it, and if you don't agree with it, you can't cast it. It's the word of God's job to do that. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess, I agree, God, I see it in my heart now. You snapped on the searchlight, you put on the x-ray film, I see it in there, it's not pleasing to you and it's ruining my life. I don't know what to do with it other than to cast it on you, throw it on you, because I know your mercies will take it and you will remove it from my heart. The word of God does all of that work. Fourth, we are made clean by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Search me, O God. Who's doing this? This is the Spirit's job. Search me, O God. Know my control center, the way I think, the way I feel, the way that I am motivated to live. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now listen, you don't sit in a lotus position, emptying your mind, while God streams in all of his messages. That is not biblical. You get to a place where you are undistracted and you go into the word of God and the word of God will be the flashlight in the Holy Spirit's hands and he will click it on to show you what he's been seeing all along that you haven't, that I haven't. And when he sees it to when he shows it to you and now you see it, you agree with it and you cast it on his mercies. Again, it's all what the word of God is doing in the hands of the Holy Spirit. You've got to be in the word. If you want a pure heart, you got to start loving the word. And it will give you to the, get you to the last one. We are made clean as we have an all-consuming desire to be like God. 
I want to say that again because this is actually, I think, the most important one. This is exactly what the Spirit of God is doing in us. We are made clean. All the other ones, one through four that I just gave you, will happen if you've got this one. We are made clean as we have an all-consuming desire to be like God. Now listen, do you love somebody right now? Do you have somebody that's captured your heart, affections of your heart? You love spending time with them? I'm pretty much not talking to anybody married. (laughs) You notice my wife is not in this uh, service. No, I am talking about marriage. But listen, it's young love that I'm really talking about. I'm talking about those who just, they think about the other person all the time. That it doesn't matter how far they got to travel. It's just being with them. That's, they'll stop anything to be with that person. Listen, if you don't have that kind of desire for God, then you right now are in love with an idol. Did you hear that? If your desire for somebody on this earth is greater than your desire for God, that person is an idol and you are worshiping it. And God doesn't appreciate it. Because that's an, uh, that is a divided heart. That's a double-minded heart. And your heart is not moving to purity. You want a pure heart, then you get an all-consuming desire for God like David had, where his heart panted for God like a deer for water. And the way that that happens is you bring your honesty to God and say, God, I want that. I don't have it, but I want it. And he's going to echo back to your mind, well, if you really want it, let's start getting into this because this will give it. You want a heart that is undivided? You want a heart that pants after God? Listen, get into his word because this is the job of the word. And your desire for God will begin growing more and more. Create in me, the psalmist cries, this is David, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. That is a constant prayer of ours. And I want to close by showing you this verse from Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. This is a marathon The Christian walk is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives now, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to do what? Well, number one, to redeem us from all lawlessness. And secondly, look at what he says. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, who live righteously. This is the bent. This is the aim of the beatitude to get to your heart. This is the goal of the beatitude to purify it. What that means is you're getting progressively clean from moral contamination sin. He's given you a new heart when he saved you. Now he's scrubbing it free in sanctification. And that sanctification is taking us from double-minded people into single-minded living that loves God more than anyone. And when you live like that, you're going to see him, you're going to know him, you're going to understand him, you're going to have more fellowship with him, and you're going to yearn for the day when you see him face to face, that will be the ultimate drive and the ultimate desire in your life. That's the beatitude that we just looked at. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen.